called TAD to remodel my place. Said I wanted it to be that kind of place. Knee deep in the reno, sinking in our fights. Other shonky builders waking me up at night. And Adam plays the boss man He listens to the customer Don't you remember He built this kitchen He built this kitchen with T-A-D We built this kitchen We built this kitchen with T-A-D We built this kitchen we built this kitchen with T-A-D I'm Ilana Rasbash and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. We are broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from the mighty lands of the Kulin Nations. The Karam Karam Swamp has been continuously occupied by the Bunurong people for more than 7,000 years. And this continent, Australia, has been occupied since time immemorial. It is long overdue that we should have constitutional recognition for the oldest continuous living culture. I hope you'll join me in voting yes on October 14th. Tonight's guest on Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash is Michael Smith, an architect, advocate and co-director of Architecture Practice and EVA, based in Carlton. The practice is deliberately broad in focus and agile in direction. Michael is also an award-winning writer and advocate for better designed cities and built environments. In addition to these roles, Michael is the consulting architect for Built Environment Channel and a Master of Architecture thesis supervisor at the Melbourne School of Design. I'm really excited to have Michael on the program tonight and hope you'll join me, listeners, in congratulating him on the recent win of the Bates Smart Award at the Australian Institute of Architects Victorian Chapter Awards for his contribution to journalism and architectural communications. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Lana. Great to be here. Well, the first question I like to ask all my guests and um, some, some definitely get a sneak peek on what that one is, is what's your earliest memory of a building or place? Uh, well, it would have to be the um, suburban home that I grew up in in Mulgrave, um, which was a um, quite a beautiful double brick um, uh, suburban house um, with uh, you know high uh, uh, cathedral ceilings and Mission Brown uh, uh, rafters and and um, you know uh, appointments, I guess. Um, yeah, uh, and I was yeah very fortunate to sort of. Um, have that as a sort of home for, you know, all of my childhood. Um, and, um, you know, it was only a few years ago that my, uh, my parents actually sold up. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, source of a lot of good memories. It was a bittersweet that moment selling for them. Oh, for sure. For sure. But, um, you know, it, what a privilege to have like a, a place, uh, a home like that to, um, to grow up in, you know. Absolutely. Do you mm. think it inspired your desire to become an architect? Uh, it's hard to say. I, I, um, it's possible, um, but I, I don't think that it's as simple as, as connecting two dots and saying, yep, that's definitely it. You know? um, it's more complicated than that. What was it for you, do you think you know? I think it was evolution of things. So, you know, um, high school graphics uh, classes um, definitely played a part in sort of um, wanting to do something kind of, uh, you know, I suppose a, a visual medium. Um, and then, um, but even then I'm not sure that necessarily like that was a, that was really about a visual medium, but then it was only at university where it was really about design. And then, um, yeah, so it, it just sort of, um, 
it's a continuum. It's not like a... It came together for you. Yeah. Of course, I, I, all, all of those journeys are, aren't they? And you eventually found your way into doing more and more riding as well. Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, almost a accident kind of thing. Oh, yeah, say more. How did that happen? <laughs> well, I, I found myself um, uh, living in Newcastle, um, regional New South Wales, uh, for a year, but sort of only every second week, uh, working uh, for a practice uh, in Victoria, but then remotely every second week in Newcastle. And, and that experience was, um, you know, it was great, but was felt quite disconnected from what was going on. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe in, in my free time that I have, you know, being in Newcastle where I knew very few people and um, didn't do much outside that work, um, I thought, well, maybe as an opportunity to, to, you know, write something, you know, and then it's a question of what you write. And, and so, you know, I started a blog um, and rather than sort of make it sort of inward focused in terms of the work that I was doing. It was very much an outward focused kind of um, what was happening. Do, does it still exist? Can readers look it up? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, um, it it's um, changed, you know, it had a, had an iteration change, but uh, it's, it's the Red and Black Architect. Uh, and so you just go to the redandblackarchitect.com um, and that's got, you know, posts from 2012 through to 20, just before the pandemic 2020. And at that point I'm like, you know what, I think – think that sort of run its course but um yeah so it started out very um very rudimentary i guess um and then at one point i thought you know what maybe um maybe i should like interview an architect so i found an architect i, I also jo- joined twitter at that point as well and and there was a wonderful twitter community at the time and unfortunately it's sort of more or less a shell of what it used to be but um yeah you know in particular you know the, the kind of the the leading feminists, um, you know, and around the, the parlor collective, um, were all quite active on Twitter, at, um, back in the day. But, um, yeah, so you know, I interviewed an architect and then did some more writing and interviewed another architect and then gradually they, you know, increased in, in, um, I suppose seniority or notor- notoriety within the, within the profession and, um, you know, ended up, you know, uh, I interviewed Ted Bayou and, um, Jill Garner and, then Jill Garner said at the time, you know, that the Nightingale projects were um, just sort of um, starting, I guess. And there was a controversial VCAT decision where, um, you know, Nightingale was knocked uh, knocked back uh, because they didn't have cars, you know. And um, the, the government architect came out and said VCAT got it wrong, um, which suddenly, the you know, uh, the likes of um, The Age and um, Domain uh, suddenly went, oh, hang on, is this guy who asked the, the pertinent question and the, the government architect responded, so actually maybe we should get him to write some. So that led to sort of writing for Domain. Um, yeah, and then then obviously we had the pandemic, so I sort of kind of stopped writing for a little while and, and got a, a call out of the blue um, about uh, – I was ranting about the government's um, – I suppose defunding of the well, not complete defunding, but drastic cutting of the budget for the Victorian government architect, and why this was a terrible decision, uh, and it, you know uh, how you know by saving a very small amount of money, we're basically losing a whole lot of um, uh, amazing design uh, input um, to get better better outcomes on on billions of dollars worth of spending. So. Um, so yeah, I was ranting about that on Twitter, and they said, "How oh, actually you know, got a call out of the blue? Maybe you should write something for the age." And so that sort of led into the to the series of articles um, more recently and last year, and and uh, one so far this year. Yeah, and eventually the award and recognition from the institute. Yeah, which was was lovely. Yeah, huge congratulations, Michael. Thanks. I, I, w- I want to um kind of look look into that article a bit further. The your your thoughts on the reduced funding to the OVGA. I think it's also important for the listeners we explain what is the OVGA. Mm, sure. Okay. So the Office of Victorian Government Architect um, is, you know, a uh, body within the public service um, that is basically trying to provide the um, the public service and, and, the, and the people making political decisions with and arm them with design knowledge, basically, so that they're a smart client. 
So rather than having people who don't know what a good building would be or how to achieve one, sort of having all of the power in, term, in terms of government spending, being able to get experts in to say, well, actually, you know what, maybe if you tweak the building this way or that way or if you made these changes, we get a better bang for buck essentially and better building as well, you know. So we spend a small amount of, of uh, money, you know, comparatively and we get this, this sort of body that provides – um, you know, input to get design excellence. Um, and, you know, it, there's been studies done uh, about their sort of, um, you know, I suppose return on investment. Um, and it's, you know, it's hard to quantify exactly, but we know that it's ridiculously high. Um, so, Especially yeah. when there's billions of public money coming through in terms of built infrastructure projects. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if we're going to spend that amount of money on, on buildings, let's, you know, make them as good as they can be um, and make sure that, you know, we're not building a whole lot of duds so that, you know, in, you know, 10 years time we go, oh, we got these buildings that we built only 10 years ago. We're stuck with them. We kind of really need to redo them because they don't work for us. And, you know, how do we, you know, waste so much money? Let's, let's do it right the first time by, you know, um, getting, uh, you know, good oversight and good processes in place. And for the listeners, what the buildings we're talking about are hospitals. Yeah. They're massive developments. They're train stations. Yeah. They're and so the, the Victorian government, uh, the Office of Victorian Government Architect um, is, not, um, is not able to provide guidance on, on the full gamut of everything that's happening in the state of Victoria. Whilst they're, they're sort of entitled to, you know, have their input here and there, um, their resources are finite and um, as they get cut back and cut back and cut back, their ability, you know, the, the, the projects that they're able to sort of have influence on also, you know, become more and more limited. So, um, yeah, so we need, we need better buildings and, and, and better governments uh, and more informed governments uh, spending our money. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing that they do, the design review panel actively provides input on is private development as well. Yep. So with, with each enormous skyscraper that's going up, they're really trying to push for better design outcomes. Yep. And that is also restricted like with, with the amount of funding that they've got. So, you know, in an ideal world, we'd have them across a lot of our, our um, buildings, but I think in reality that, that has been constrained Um quite some bit. What forces do you think are at play that are driving some of this short-sightedness? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think um, uh, it's, it's interesting. We've got this sort of dynamic here in Victoria and I think, you know, it plays out, you know, in other jurisdictions as well, that um, the decisions about what, how the built environment um the forms that it takes, the projects that we do, um, they happen at a political level amongst elected officials. But at the same time, the system, the, the, the political system that gets them voted in, very rarely do we see an election. We, we never see an election really fought on built environment issues. So it, it, it's, it forms kind of a, a lower rung kind of priority. Um, and so it's kind of just the plaything of whoever's in charge. Um, and they can do it well, they can do it badly, they can have, you know, uh, I mean, we've previously had a, a, an architect premier uh, who's obviously got a, a very good understanding of how buildings get procured and the built environment. Um, but, you know, we've got, we've got all comers into that sort of um, political class. And um, so the, the challenge really becomes how do we – how do we, you know, advocate and how do we, um, you know, how do we as, as a, a, you know, as the architecture profession try and, um, you know, get the best outcomes we can for the community we serve? Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's a huge challenge. I saw an amazing post on Instagram shared, I couldn't tell you the exact source and author, but it was shared earlier today. And on the left-hand side, there was a list of every single lobby group and professional association that managed to get themselves a voice in parliament, so to speak, mm. and have input on legislation yep. and decisions and funding allocation. 
And then on the right-hand side, there was a column of those who don't have that input, and that's, as we know, First Nations people. And I also thought alongside that, the architects aren't in their lobbying. Well, I don't think that's like uh, – I don't think it's uh, – I'm, I'm not going to say it's blankly – as a blanket truth that that's the case. Uh, there, there are definitely, you know, there is the OVGA and they are, you know, doing the best they can with the resources they have. And there is the Institute that is, you know, of architects that is trying to, you know, do things as well. And so th- there are groups and, you know, um, mainstream media do publish pieces from architects about how we can, you know, do things better or, or you know, where we're f- falling down. Um, but, you know, w- whether it's sufficient to sort of move the, the dial um, or how how effective it is um, remains to be seen a bit. Do you think we will ever have a federal government architect? Um, I Chief asked, architect. I asked Adam Bant this at some, uh, in his interview um, a while back. I, I think he was a little bit sceptical about what it could bring, but um, he sort of understood the general concept that, you know, if we've got a, the, if we have a stronger public service that can really provide frank and fearless advice to the politicians, then we will get better results. Um, but yeah, it, um, it, cities and, and built environment issues, uh, I, I don't think that the federal government has really, um, is, has, they've never really done that well, I don't think. Um, they they seem to be just too far removed, um, or the, it, it's never a priority. We did have a minister for cities for quite some time. I don't believe we've currently got that portfolio anymore. Um, I might stand to be corrected on that, but I, I, you know, there was some city deals that were, were announced, but how effective they were and how um, in, in you know uh, in achieving change and high quality change. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure that, that, that they, they've been doing as well as they can be, yeah. Speaking of latest announcements, the housing reform mm. in Victoria, what are your thoughts there? So it's very interesting. Obviously, they've got like a massive grab bag of different things um, and so I think it's probably useful to direct this conversation at, at the bit that's really around planning because there's a whole other bit around rental reforms and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, largely, you know, as a personal view, I think that's great. You know, we need to fix those kind of things. In terms of the planning uh, things, so there's talk about rewriting Plan Melbourne, except it'll be Plan Victoria, so expanding it out from just Melbourne to across the state. And um, there's a few other bits and pieces um, as well in, in that sort of um, package and, uh, you know, rewriting the Planning and Environment Act. And so it's, uh, it's very much a plan to have a plan. Um, and it could be done well, it could be done badly, it could be somewhere in between, and we'll just have to wait and see how these things pan out. Uh, it, it's it's a great announceable, um, but I actually thought, in the, you know, given how much discussion there'd be, that there'd be a little bit further down the, the path in some of these things than just, right, we're going to start with the blank piece of paper and write new legislation around Planning Environment Act. A few more strategies instead of just policies. Yeah, well, yes. Yes, I thought that was, that's where we were, but, you know, we're not there yet, but uh, clearly, you know, they're going to put some thought into it over the next, you know, couple of years, I would imagine, to get that sort of into a a form. Um, I think the planning system itself, um, it, it seems like it's just been a, a it's patchwork of bits and pieces cobbled together and, and the the parts of the housing announcement that, that were, oh, you know, the... Um, uh, the granny flat will be able to be built without, you know, these are further things that have just been cobbled onto an existing system that's sort of creaking under all of these exceptions. Um, yeah, so, you know, th- there's that. And there's also a concern I have about, you know, we seem to ha- be targeting the $50 million plus um, housing developments and we're doing the granny flats, but we're not doing the, the actual missing middle. There's also, a, you know, the, the missing middle, which is the, you know, typically the the smaller, gentler density. Um, there seems to be a missing middle in the policy area as well. In that, um, we'll, we'll look after the big end, we'll look after the granny flat, but we we don't quite know what we're doing in the middle bit yet. Mm. Yeah. The mention of planning it's a really good segue into some of your advocacy around save our save Fed Square. 
um, Save Our City, Save Our Square campaign. There was the Citizens of Melbourne against the demolition of the Yarra building at Federation Square to be replaced with an Apple store and you were very active in that one. Yeah, so there's a group of um, individuals that sort of came together around that, um, uh, led uh, by Tanya Davich. Um, and, um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a great collective group of people working together to sort of um, prevent a really bad outcome from occurring. Um, and I think uh, as more time passes, that uh, – that, that, um, that case for, for keeping um, the Yarra building at Federation Square becomes stronger and stronger um, as Apple becomes more just another brand. Um, you know, would, would we do it if it was Samsung? No, we wouldn't. But is Apple much different to Samsung these days? Maybe a little bit different, but, you know, it's it's certainly not worth, worth knocking down, um, you know, part of our iconic square for. Now the Corey Heritage Trust has been just been refurbished. Yeah, and so now that that takes up the whole of the Arrow Building now, which is fantastic. You know, really putting it, um, you know, in the cultural centre of, of Melbourne. It's fantastic. What were some of your favourite moments from that campaign, or any stories? Um, oh, there, there was a, a, a tongue-in-cheek um, auction that we held um, towards the end of the campaign, where um, where we uh, asked people to to you know basically buy back the Yarra building. <laughs> we had a fun, yeah, fundraising campaign to buy back the Yarra building for a building that, you know, just tongue in cheek, of course. But um, yes, so um, one of the, um, one of the, our, our members, Brett DeHoot, doing a, an auction there in front of the Yarra building, um, selling it off. I thought it was, yeah, kind of one of those uh, moments that will, will uh, stick me, with me for some time. But um, yeah, that, that stands out. Speaking of the, the economics of that whole, schlamozzle of a situation really mm. i remember when the campaign was launched and there was a big de- debate at the edge theater mm. um which was really really great to watch i was in the audience that night and one of the points that was made was the federation square this piece of pavement is is set that it has to make money and someone said does the pavement out the front of your house make money yeah well that, that's that's right and, and there's plenty of examples of um you know uh public buildings that we don't have that expectation on, but for some reason we sort of apply it onto, um, onto Federation Square. And I think that that's just, that's probably the fundamental problem um, is, is the kind of financial model that was built under. Um, and, and, and things flowed out from that um, in terms of the over commercialization of the space. And then, you know, trying to, you know, what do we need to do in order if we, if we're trying to balance this notional, um, you know, uh, problem of it needs to make money or it needs to pay for itself, um, then, yeah, that that's a problem. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the decision was resolved in the end through Heritage, right? Uh, yes, in part. It, like uh, Heritage was was a big part of it. Um, uh, it received a Heritage listing so that, um, you know, the significant fab- fabric couldn't be removed. And at that point... Apple decided it wasn't worth their effort to override that or to overcome that or to work within the fabric that was there. Um, so they, they pulled out because of the, because of the heritage listing. Yeah. It was pivotal in terms of heritage decisions because I don't believe there's a lot of contemporary architecture of that age that then gets a heritage listing. Yeah. So it is certainly an interesting case. Um, it, it did change, um, you know, people's perception of heritage um, and, uh, you know, it really made the case for the social value um, being included in heritage um, consideration. Um, but it's not sort of unprecedented in terms of it, a, a young building being heritage listed, like NGV um, got heritage listed, um, I think, a year after it was built. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, it's... It, it, it was different in that, you know, it was a fairly young building to have that process bestowed upon it, but um, it's not it's not completely out of the out of the blue, I guess. Mm, not, not totally unprecedented. That's yeah, exactly. Roy Grounds, incredible yep. GV. Yeah. Wow. What, what an honour, really. Imagine within a year you get a heritage listing for something. Yeah, well, they, they, they looked at it differently and they went, well, we've, we've put all this effort and time and, and 
money into building this thing and we think it's a fantastic outcome and so this is something we want to pass on to future generations. So we we list it for those reasons, not because it is 100 years old and we haven't got around to knocking it down yet. Exactly, and the, the intangible yeah. cultural heritage as well. Yeah. But the, the level of political will and the future thinking it requires to actually proceed and go ahead and go through with that. Yeah. What have been um, some of the other issues that you've been exploring in your writing perhaps that are really quite close to your heart as an advocate, as an architect? Uh, there's all sorts of things around the city in terms of how we build and what we build and why we build it um, and, and who who gets to, you know, say it, what we build, you know. Um, so, you know, um, yeah, all, all sorts of things from, you know, um, making our cities uh, more, you know, pedestrian friendly and, you know, uh, preparing them for what's to come in terms of, um, you know, climate change and, and that sort of thing. Um, through to, you know, just, uh, celebrating some wins, you know, uh, I did a piece in the age about, um, playground, some of the playground design that's been happening, um, which these sort of urban spaces that, um, you know, I, I, th- I think there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, momentum behind the idea that a su- Australian life is a suburban life. And I think, um, you know, that is slowly changing, but there, there is a great urban life too, and that can be a family life, um, and 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 cities can be can be great places for families, and so um, you know we we see these these playgrounds that the city of Melbourne are doing, and they're doing fantastic work. You know, um, the, the the playground that is um, sits at the bottom of uh, Australia One Hundred and Eight, you know, currently um, Melbourne's tallest tower, um, is you know we call it the Rock Playground, you know, but it, it's um, it's it's probably internationally significant for what it's doing in terms of um, you know providing environment for kids to you know experience risk and to weigh up risk and to evaluate you know what's safe and what's not safe um, and and to all, all in in a fun kind of environment um, you know so I, I think there's a lot of success stories that you know are equally worthy of promoting rather than just sort of saying, oh, this is rubbish and that's rubbish and we should be doing this better and that better. Oh, definitely. And bringing bringing those good examples to help inspire people forward. It's it's almost like Night, Nightingale by, have changed the market with the level of their development offering and that's changed the expectations. Part of that, I think, also comes through how we communicate design and architecture and those latest developments and we if we can talk about those positives as well and the great things our profession is doing and the amazing research that's coming out then that all contributes to the value as well yeah i i think one of the things that um i, I would like to see it is if if the general public um when they wanted to know about an urban issue if instead we of, of immediately going to the property developer and getting their perspective if we got the if we got the architecture or architect or the landscape architect or the planner's perspective on these things, if they were the go-to for, for that information about whether something's good or bad for a city rather than the property developer or, you know, the the, the property developer's lobby group, um, you know, then I think I think that would be that's, – that's the place where we need to be, you know. When, when the public wants to know what's good for our city, the, that's the voices that – that um, they need to be listening to, and it's sometimes frustrating when, you know, big issue drops, and, and you know, oh, you know, what, what does what does the developer lobby think about it? Well, you know, they want to make money. That's their motivation. Um, speak to the professionals who are in it for better design, better, you know, better, you know, results public for realm. the community. Yeah, public Absolutely. realms results. Yeah, exactly. You you wouldn't go to anyone other than a doctor or a nurse for questions about your health, and it's very much the same in our built environment. But if listeners have any questions tonight for Michael, the, the reminder is that you can text the studio on zero four nine three two one three eight three one, and if you miss those numbers, just hit the contact us text button on the Instagram channel, which is at Radio Architecture. I, I, I wonder about your, your, your piece in The Age, I think it was The Age, that was 
Um, this idea, the headline read that this idea that you don't have to be a NIMBY, not in my backyard or a YIMBY, yes, in my backyard. And it was, you, we don't have to be so polarised. Mm. Can you share a bit more about that? Yeah, so that was in response to the government suggesting that um, third-party property rights, which bas- basically um, developer wants to, to build an apartment next to your house and uh, you have a, a, you know, you're next to the, the, the development, you have a right to object to that in the planning process. Um, and you have a right to look after things like your overshadowing and your overlooking and, and what have you. And um, the government, Victorian government, is sort of looking at going, well, if it's got affordable housing in it, we're actually going to take away your rights to object to that because we want to encourage the affordable housing. Now, on the face of it, the, the third-party objection rights and, you know, affordable housing, they're both public goods. You know, they're good things to have. Um, you should be able to, you know, um, have some say around what happens around you and you should be able to look after your, you know, um, sort of your patch, I guess, to a degree, right? Not not so that you can dictate what happens next door, but so that you can say, well, you know, from an overlooking point of view, we have a standard and you haven't met that standard and I want you to meet that standard. I, I think that's kind of a reasonable position to take. Um, so I don't think we should be weighing one off against the other. I think instead we should be using other uh, mechanisms such as, um, you know, uh, the overall, you know, maybe the number of levels you're allowed to build. You know, you're allowed, if you if you do um, affordable housing, let's, you know, let's give you uh, access to another level that you might not otherwise be able to get, provided that things like your overlooking, overshadowing are not, you know, uh, are under control. Um, so, you know, it, it's about, um, and, and I think, you know, one of the big, big challenges with planning, big problems with planning is that it, there's so much um, discretionary um, vibe of the thing, you know, not, uh, you know, and, and, and what I mean by that, things like visual bulk or neighbourhood character. Um, these things are not uh, defined in metres or millimetres. They're not defined in uh, any anything other than, a, I suppose, a professional assessment. And so that, that leaves grey area. Now, if we if we can reduce, get the planning system to reduce the grey area, so it's more clear about what can be built and what can't be built, uh, and the standards that you have to meet, then it reduces the risk for the property developer and reduces the pro- price um, of housing. Um, we get faster, better decisions, and neighbours who are like, well, okay, sure, there might be an apartment building going up next door, but I know that they they have to meet these these requirements. Um, in, in order for them to, to, to go ahead. So, you know, it provides certainty and, and uh, I, I think some, a system where we can reduce the, the grey areas, uh, I think, would, would help. And also add a bit more nuance to, to the situation because, because sometimes it's reviewed as complied, doesn't comply, but we're not, we're not reaching towards better outcomes. Well, uh, you know, I think some things can be comply, don't comply, um, but... Um, you know, in, in terms of planning, I think I th- we just we, we need uh, clearer rules. I think it would would really help. Um, sure, then you've got the question: Oh, well, what if we we almost achieve it, but we don't quite? Well, then that's where you can get your you know that that's where the assessment will will come back. But um, so I, I I think for where where the third party um, objection um, issues come in is when we start going away from oh, it will overshadow my backyard or it will overlook my backyard and it goes into areas like, um, you know, three streets away you're doing this and, you know, it might mean that, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it, it'll decrease the value of my property is a exactly. very common gripe. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, Which has it, no basis. Yeah. Listeners, it has no basis. Yeah. Good design only adds value. Yeah, and, you know, things like, oh, well, it's already hard enough to get, you know, car parking in my street. Well, car parking is like it's it's an engineering kind of field with measurements and requirements and, and um, you know, th- that sort of thing. So let's, let's allow the traffic engineers to determine that and let's not get emotive about, you know, well, you know, I feel like it could be this or I feel like it's busy enough. 
um, or I feel like we couldn't possibly, you know, have a have a, you know, an additional dwelling in our street because it's already busy. We've definitely discussed on this program the sort of emotional attachments and the emotive attachments around the idea of cars and owning a private vehicle and the car culture and how it's been socially engineered in in this country to be tied to the, an idea of freedom. Mm. And this is where it intersects also with the planning policies and some of the pushback that happen. Yeah. Where we need to have a holistic vision if we're going to be designing sustainable communities. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we need to be, it's well recognised that we can no longer keep building out, um, although we will inevitably keep building out, but we we need to be looking at, um, you know, increasingly building in the inner and middle ring um, of Melbourne and um, I think it's worth describing what the missing metal looks like. Yeah. So just talk through what some of those developments can be and could be and what they mm. actually mean for residents. So a typical one you, you, that I don't think is necessarily a good, um, good example of a, of a good outcome is, is townhouses where you see, you know, you get a big driveway down one side and a series of, of townhouses off the other side and, you know, typically two stories and, and you get this, you get a large amount of the, the, the site dedicated essentially to a driveway and a series of, of garages. Um, alternative and a good alternative to that is a small apartment building. So something that might be out of the ground, two or three stories, um, it might basically be the form of a large house. Um, it'll have a basement um, but because of its sort of form as a large house, it'll be sort of centralised on the site and you get garden all the way around it. So instead of being dominated by a, you know, big driveway down one side, you might have, a, you have a basement entry, so it's sort of con, con, um, constrained to a smaller section of the site and you get more, you know, landscaping around it. Um, so I wrote, I wrote a piece for The Age um, uh, last year around uh maybe looking at that kind of model and saying if it's no bigger than a, a house that you have a right to build anyway and the only difference really is that um, you've got four dwellings or six dwellings or eight dwellings in this volume rather than one big mansion, why don't we make that as of right in the same way as the, as the house? Um, sure, we need to make sure that all of the apartments within it are livable but we can provide that with with you know better apartment design standards which exist, um, and by making that sort of an as of right, it means that every site like that, essentially that is eligible to be build that big mansion on, is also eligible to do that sort of six dwelling apartment building. Um, and if if you did that, you know every what every five dwellings or so, then you've you kind of um, one of those every five, then you kind of doubled your population. And you haven't gone above maybe two stories. Um, so the idea that oh, you know, apartment living is is twenty stories high or thirty stories high, you know, I, apartments can work quite well <laughs> at a two story high uh, level if if we put the the planning regime in place to make it an attractive thing for developers to want to do. And provide really wonderful amenity. When we talk about good apartments on this program, we're not saying the ones that have a glass glass screen mm. instead of a bedroom door, yep. no balconies. We're, we're talking about places that are more livable and more comfortable than a typical house even sometimes, just because of the state of the massive built fabric that we have. Yeah. So and our practice did, did one of these um, projects and it's um, – so it – fit neatly within the, the bounds of what you could do with this, like a, a, if it was a single house. Um, it did all of those those things, It, but because it was apartments, it had to go through a planning system. That planning system took 12 months to, to get an answer and then it was knocked back by councillors despite the fact that the, the planner, planning officers, the people who knew what they're talking about, actually said, yeah, we should approve this. The, the elected official said no because character grounds. Um, and uh, so consequently it went to VCAT. Another 12 months goes by. Um, and then um, VCAT approved it because it's like, well, you know, 
character? Are you kidding? It's a two-story thing in a two-story context. I mean, it looks like a house. It looks like a McMansion. I'm sure it looked much better than a McMansion. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it did look a lot better than a McMansion, but but essentially, you know, in terms of form and scale, it was it was the same as a house, right? Yeah. Um. So it, it got through, but unfortunately, you know, uh, that de- that time delay, um things had changed. You know, we had that dramatic increase in construction material. So it cost 30% more to build. Um, you know, we had the whole pandemic issues. And so, you know, the risk became too high and, and the project could, couldn't couldn't eventually um, proceed. Because, you know, but if we'd been able to start straight away, um, it would have saved, you know, um, you know, time. It would have been built. It w- yeah, everyone would have moved on with their lives. But, you would know. have set a wonderful precedent as well. Well, that's true. For a typology that I feel, unfortunately, we are at this point as a society that until they don't, until they see it, they don't believe it. Yeah, yeah, and look, you know, there's um, you can certainly look back to a whole series of apartments in that have been built in the last twenty years that have been pretty poor. Absolutely, not saying for a moment that like there's the skeptic skepticism from the general community towards apartments. Is, is not unwarranted um, given that we've had if, dish, issues around, you know, um, you know, flammable cladding and, and you know, building defects and um, and prior to the, the apartment stands coming in just, you know, building absolute dog boxes um, and, you know, basically developers sort of um, trading off amenity to save costs and still being able to sell the products. So um, hence why we end up with these these sort of, poor outcomes. But as the apartment market has matured, as we understand um, well, as, as the global um, situation around flammable cladding has become understood, you know, it's not just a Victorian issue. It's not even a, just an Australian issue. It's a global issue. Um, so as those things have, have worked their way through and as we've got our standards in place and, you know, we really need to be pushing for, you know, those exemplars to really be brought to the, the forefront Um and to sort of define, I, know, I think, a new Australian living because that is that is really the future. And not just the ministerial consciousness but also the public consciousness. Yeah. Which which we're starting to see in um, some areas, especially in the northern suburbs, and I, I look forward to that enthusiasm growing yeah, and, out here and in Karen. Look at the amazing things that happen with, um, yeah, as you say, with the Nightingale Village, you know, and, and the they took the worst bit of – of uh, industrial Brunswick and turned it into this sort of, you know, uh, urban oasis, uh, which, you know, everyone, you know, with, with any sort of um, design background recognises as a desirable place to kind of live now. Um, and, th- yeah, so they've, they've achieved amazing things. Um, so I think that's really, you know, um, the poster child for what the, the future of maybe Australian cities could be like. I really, I really, really hope so. Um, I wonder with your Endeavour projects that, that your practice does, how do you go about procuring uh, buildings lately given the cost ex- escalation in the current environment that we're in? Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a, tricky, um, a tricky one. Um, we have um, not been very traditional in the way that we would approach that. You know, traditional thing is, oh, yes, you go out and you, you design the whole thing and then you go to three builders and you get three different prices. Each of those three builders will, you know, uh, it puts in a lot of work to get a price together and then they um, obviously are trying to um, – they're also trying to compete so they, they take out every little thing that's not um, absolutely necessary from the price and then they come back and then you – award it to the lowest price and, you know, and and that's sort of the traditional uh, mechanism. So that when the builder then, you know, now you have to deliver it for that price, they look at every opportunity to try and claw back money um, and to, you know, you know. Get a variation as we call it. Exactly. Yeah, you get hit with variations and and all that sort of stuff. So um, so we were um, particularly before, you know, say the last two years, we, we, we were using um, a different system whereby we would select a builder um, based on quality of past work 
um, and um, ability to deliver, you know, what a great outcome for our client. Now, when I say we, we would ask our clients to select this builder. You know, we would suggest, hey, this one works in this area, does this quality work, let's have a chat. And invariably they would go, okay, you know what, this builder is actually really good. Um, They do good work. Um, They could build our home. Then the only question then becomes, well, how much is it going to cost, right? And so if we get them involved early along the piece to say, okay, we're at sketch design or we're at design development or we're at town planning or we're at documentation and all these points along the way, share the plans with them and say, how much do you reckon it will cost? Now, as you go from a very sketchy thing to a very precise thing, their ability to predict the cost will improve. Um, And we can take into account the fact that once they've got all the information, it's probably about 10% more than they thought it was going to be at the start. But we know that going into it, right? We don't necessarily tell the builder that we think that that's what's going to happen, but we we prepare the client for that. And then, so as, as they go along through this process, we get these price checks along the way, we adjust the design as need be, comes to the final thing, we go, okay, here's your final price. Client goes, oh, it's a little more than I was thinking, but you know, it's kind of in the realm of what we were prepared for. Or it's a lot more than I was thinking, You, where would this go wrong? Because you said a while back it wasn't going to be this and now it's that. Um, so as long as the builder at that point um, keeps the trust in terms of what they were saying all along is kind of how it's panned out, then um, they kind of have first dibs at it. If they lose the client's trust, then the client can just go, well, you know what, we're just going to go the standard tender process. Um, we're not committed to that builder at that point. So um, we find that that's been a really good way to go because it means that when the builder's giving the price, they're not giving the price for um, stripping out everything that um, isn't sort of, you know, it isn't seen, I guess. Um, and they can they feel like they can price it to do the quality of work that they want to do because – Believe it or not, a lot of builders actually just want to do good work, just like architects, yeah, right? Yeah, they really do. Yeah. So, um, so it's a really about helping them to deliver that, um, and and procurement processes can really make or break a project in terms of you know allowing a builder to do good work. And does the client pay them for those cost checks, those cost plans along the way? Um, so we were um, traditionally, you know, in the process that we were running, no, the the, the builder had trust with us that. You know, as long as they, um, you know, uh, as long as the pricing didn't go off the rails and as long as they didn't do anything that, that impacted the client's trust in them, they took a leap of faith to do that pricing. And um, basically every time we did it, they they were rewarded with that. So, and then you build up this relationship of, okay, well, you know, um, we know what happened last time. We know that it's going to be okay. There's still no guarantees. They client could work, walk away and that's completely fine. Um, like, you know, I can't control what the client decides to do. It's their project, their money. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think as long as everyone's aware of how that process runs and everyone goes in with their eyes open and a bit of trust in terms of, you know, um, you know, putting their, you know, um, best foot forward and, and acting, you know, honestly, then yeah, there's no. In a really collaborative manner. Exactly. This is, this is an ECI. This is an early contractor involvement Yeah, in yeah. a way, but it's also kind of like a mini, mini alliance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. So, um, so that's, that's the way we, we like to operate. But again, whilst we might, um, we might suggest that as a, as a path forward, if our client's like, no, I don't feel comfortable with that. I want to do the three tender approach. We'll do that as well. Although that being said, in the current environment, finding three builders to provide a price has become almost impossible. And to do it in the same time frame is almost impossible. So um, with you know that that makes that that a traditional tender approach really difficult. And have you found with the ECI that once you get on site, the relationships and the attitudes are different? Well, yeah, because you're not immediately – you've got a builder trying to, um, you know, find back the, the 10 grand that they took out to try and win the job in the first place. Um, they, they, you know, priced it properly, you know, and and from, from the beginning and so you know, and priced it in a way that they could do the quality of job that they were expecting. So essentially our clients are choosing for a quality job rather than the lowest price. 
It's an absolute win-win. Yeah, It's good absolutely. for the client. It's good for the architect. You get a, a sense of a peer review process almost yep. as the builder checks in. You get build, better building stock. Yep. And as we know from Dr. Reisbeck's work with Architeam Collective, you get a return of $11.30, I believe, on each dollar spent on architect's fees. Yeah. Um, so the research definitely shows that, you know, um, Better design is more valuable in terms of from a pure real estate dollar. Um, absolutely, yeah. And that's just another way to bring it closer to that quality. Yeah. Well, it's, it sounds like an absolute no-brainer in the in this market. Yeah. Uh, th- and that's like a layer of economic sustainability in a way for the construction industry. Um, a good faith with the builders and keep allowing them to continue their business sustainably. Your own business sustainably. One thing I noticed that I, I love when looking at your website, um, you you have basically a, a point or a disclaimer in a way saying that all your staff are fairly inadequately remunerated and that it's important that clients know that the, the architecture they're procuring is also yeah, e- socially and economically sustainable in that way. Yeah, unfortunately there are some um, operators out there who don't, um, you know, pay award wages um, and – there are others actually potentially medium and large firms who may think they are but actually are not. Um, so in, in the sense that um, for the medium large firms, it's, it's, the, not the, um, it's not the graduate or the student that, that they're, they're not, um, not paying enough. It'll, it'll be the sort of mid-tier architect who um, is doing, you know, crazy overtime and they go, oh, yeah, we, we pay, you know, 20k above award so that means we we buy your soul and so you you work it over time and you know um and, and there you go right but just because you pay 20k over doesn't mean that that's necessarily you know on, on the base rate doesn't mean once you add in all of that overtime that that 20k covers the overtime now if you work enough overtime you're actually under the award that's not even close in this economy well that's right so so you know um so we, we make a point of, of saying on our website that, um, you know, when we, um, when we pay staff, we pay them properly and we don't, um, yeah, and, and therefore our fees reflect the fact that we're paying them properly. Um, and, yeah, so that, that's important to us, yeah. Because it's people and the clients need to remember that it's people on the front lines of architecture that are design, document and deliver their yeah, buildings. Yeah, for sure. The, for sure. you know, form the heart and soul of their life then after. Yeah, yeah. And look, we, we've also, you know, um, we have, have mentored quite a few students who are entering the profession um, and so we hear stories about about their first steps into into practices, uh, you know, across, um, across Victoria and, um, you know, some, some great things and some really not okay things. Um, so... Yeah, we we um we think it's an important thing that if it, if everyone just you know took the award and did that, you know that that's a that's a good baseline, right? We can work from there. Bare minimum. Yeah. yeah. You've also been a really big advocate for gender equity in the profession as well. Yeah. Um. So I was a member of the um, Institute of Architects uh, National Committee for Gender Equity. Um, a founding member. Um some time ago now um and yeah that, that was a really interesting um experience uh for sure i mean the the gender equity committee was deliberately you know diverse and was really about trying to lock in you know diversity in in the institute but also um try and help the profession um with a huge gender um inequity um, that is ongoing. Yeah. And usually for our listeners, what happens is at student entry level, we have gender parity, um, it continues through slowly starts to drop off, but at the registration stage, equal, equal, equal. And then after registration, there's a big, a big slump. And as the years progress, the profession tends to be more and more male dominated. Yeah. And I think that like, there, there are reasons that people will point to as to why that's the case. But I think the really, the one that really, really gets my goat is the, the pay gap, the gender pay gap. There is a gender pay gap 
for first year out of university. How that can happen um, is it, it's outrageous, but it happens, and um, uh, yeah, and and it's something that um, you know, and and then from there it gets worse as 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 the career progresses, right? Um, plus the superannuation losses. Plus the superannuation losses. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there are, there are big issues, but, um, the good thing is, um, the, the research, um, organization parlor came into being, uh, a decade ago. Yeah. I was going to say a decade ago, but it's probably a little bit more than that. Maybe. Um, anyway, around that time, um, identified the problem, studied the problem, PhDs were, were, were acquired out of that research. So it's, you know, very rigorous um, stuff. Quantitative and qualitative. Yes. Incredibly rigorous. Yep. So, um, and, and, and so this organization now exists that, that sort of tracks that progress and, and advocates for, for change. And I think it's a really, um, I think other industries and professions could, could, who have gender equity issues could really learn from that process and, and almost pick that up and, and, and insert into other, other industries as to how to um, get, how to understand the problem firstly and how to sort of work on change. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm so inspired by the work of Parla. They've been absolutely instrumental to, to my generation and the generations coming yeah. um, that have bulldozed the way towards our sort of hope and freedom and, and professional opportunity. Yeah. And it's a very much an intersectional organisation now, isn't it? That's expanded across so many topics. That's right. Yep. So it's 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 more than just gender. Um, you know, it's diversity in all all forms. And um, you know, I, th- I think that's that's fantastic because, you know, ultimately, if we've got a more diverse design workforce, um, we get better design. Um, it's the same with with boards, for example. You know, um, corporate boards. If you've got a diverse board. Um, they will more likely to thrash out ideas, less likely just to all agree on the thing and then go play golf. Um, and, and you get better, better decisions. So it's all about, you know, um, getting as many different, um, ideas around the table and and design is exactly that. So. Absolutely agree. So what gives you hope? What gives me hope? Well, in, in gender equity, uh, in everything, in in life, in pro, in your professional life, in your public life, in your uh, in your life as a citizen, <laughs> however you want to answer that question, what? Ah, uh, look, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of um, there's a lot of good things happening under the surface, and a lot of change that's happening, um, and I suppose hope is that change can occur. Um, you know, I, I don't. Yeah, I, I'm concerned about what will happen in a couple of weeks' time with this uh, referendum. Um, I, I I don't know that we're going to get the change that we desperately need. Um, but uh, the world is 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 more um, malleable than than perhaps people realise. And if if enough people realise that, then we'll get we'll get change occurring. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm staying very very hopeful for in it, for the referendum in a few weeks' time. And I think we must, as as those of us that have the privilege of not having our identities and our opinions questioned at the moment and up for public scrutiny, we we have to band together and advocate and have conversations with those who can't or those who are unsure or those who don't know much about it. And harden to see the profession getting actively involved as well. The well, architects for yes. I I think what what um the public may not be aware of is that. There's, there has been a radical change in the way architects are looking at, at Indigenous culture and, un, you know, making attempts to understand designing on country. And, and this is only in the last few years. And, if you know, if, if that's happening at the, the sort of architecture face now and even if you look broader across society in terms of, you know, welcomes to country and, and um, you know, just representations of Indigenous culture um, – it, it's it's a mile away from where we where we were, you know, twenty thirty years ago, and as long as that trajectory continues, um, you know, even even if the referendum were to fail, um, it's hard to see that momentum stopping at that point. That momentum will keep going as the as the generations sort of, you know, continue. And you know, if if we make a mistake, I'm sure that mistake will be rectified at some point in the future. I really hope everyone will join us in in voting yes. And you're absolutely right. All, all 
architectural criteria or definitions of what is good design in Australia is certainly shifting uh, towards Indigenous and First Nations inclusion and recognition and designing with country, connecting for country. It's Uh, part of uh, competencies that architects uh, are required to have now, which is, you know, um, a big leap forward. And I I work on a lot of government projects and that's really part of our fundamental brief that we're getting from the state government. So the government's on board, our clients are on board, the public is expecting it. There's so many things that the public wants from it. I think it's, it's time for us to actually put our vote behind that expectation. For sure. And vote yes. Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Carrium studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hello, I'm Con. And I'm Stav. And, and we're we Eddie Nucky. You're listening to Radio Caram. Mm-hmm.